0: It's an unfortunate fact of life. When you have a workforce of 2 million people, a few of them will commit harassment, retaliate against whistleblowers, or bring their partisan politics to the office. Much of the work at remedying these problems falls to the Office of Special Counsel. Joining me in studio with a review of the past year, Special Counsel Henry Kerner. Mr. Kerner, good to
1: have you in. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom.
0: So let's start with your main thesis in this special report, in the annual report, that the OSC is performing at unprecedented levels and your workload has gone up. Give us some of the quantities and what you've been dealing with.
1: Sure. So when I got to OSC, one of my priorities was to work uh, more efficiently. And one of the first things we did is we instituted an efficiency and effectiveness working group that would look over all our processes to make sure that we are really processing cases as well as we can. My priorities for OSC are what I call a sort of three-legged stool. We want to be accurate, we want to be timely, and we want to be friendly. I call this old-style customer service. And one of the things we really want to make sure is that we get the best service to whistleblowers and other complainants that we can. And I think we've done that. I call it OSC 1.0. And in my first year, we were able to really uh, accomplish a lot of things. We had 314 favorable actions. That is a very high number. I mean, some couple of years back, it was only 106. So it really improved uh, our performance for whistleblowers. We've also gotten a lot more uh, efficient in terms of how we process cases. The other priority for me was to change the culture. So not just the internal old-style customer service, but also across the government. I wanted to make sure that we reached out to agencies. I, I went to see agency heads, general counsels and get them to buy into a culture of protecting whistleblowers. For one, it's the law, so they need to do that. But for another, it's also good. It's good for the federal workforce to respect whistleblowers because whistleblowers will tell you where the bodies are buried. They will help you get rid of fraud, waste, and abuse. When you're running the VA, when you're running the Department of Defense, when you're running all these giant... Uh, agencies, how are you ever going to know that there is a fly infestation in the San Antonio office? You're not going to know that until someone tells you. And no one's going to tell you that if they're worried for their job. Um, So that's something that I really wanted to promote. And in this type of adjudicatory work,
0: how do you increase efficiency? Because it's a judgment, it's hearings, it's reading documents?
1: Sure. So what what we primarily do is we receive complaints, right? So whether it be uh, disclosures of wrongdoing, uh, you know, violations of rules, rules, statute, regulation, whether it be Act complaints, whether it be UCERA, which are the reentry rights of, of military service members, which are obviously very important, or whether it be prohibited personnel practices. We receive these complaints, and then we have different ways to adjudicate them, to deal with them. Now, how do we measure these? some of these productivities? Well, we look at, for example, cost per case. So our costs per case have have gone down by about 28%. In 2009 we spent about $6,127 per, uh, per case and in FY18 the last uh, the last fiscal year it went down to $4,400. So we try to be more efficient, try to try to really make sure that we spend less money per case while still getting those good results I already mentioned the favorable actions that we've gotten. So that's that's how we try to deal with the um uh, you know measuring our, our success. In but can term- this
0: work be sped up in such a
1: way as to lower the cost? Because the cost has got to be all human hours, correct? Sure, but part of it can be efficiency. So, for example, we had. Uh, on the pers- uh, prohibited personnel practices, we had two units dealing with them. One was called the Complaints Examining Unit. That was the unit that basically received your complaint, did some preliminary work, if if there was some merit to it. And, you know, unfortunately, we're not always to h- able to help with suppliers. We do close a, a large amount of cases. but we are. But by doing this in a more timely way, we, of course, save resources too. And then by, by combining this this complaint examining unit with the investigations unit, we essentially eliminated a lag. The lag of transferring the case once the initial examination has been completed to the other unit to then sort of look at it more more fulsomely, we combine this in one. And by doing so, you reduce costs because you're now able to have one attorney or one examiner handle the case, the, the lifetime of the case.
0: Sure. And let's get to some of the qualitative aspects of the work. In some ways, whistleblower retaliation is kind of like sexual harassment reports. They go up and down. It's hard to know whether the reporting is coming forth more frequently or whether the incidents that originate that are happening more frequently. What's your sense of whistleblower actual retaliation trends?
1: So that's why I'm, I, that's absolutely right. Now, often it's, it's difficult to establish causation. Um, I think under my predecessor, Carolyn Lerner, as well as myself, um, we have really made protecting whistleblowers a top priority, and we've increased federal workers' awareness of OSC. As awareness goes up, people realize that that not that we've made you aware of your rights, you have those, and so people exercise them. I haven't really seen a trend where I could say, oh, on this year or that year, it's really gone up. Uh, But one of the things we try to do that's very important is we try to be very proactive. We go talk to, you know, we have regular meetings with the VA. The VA is our number one customer. And so we have regular meetings with the agency head, with, they have a, their own whistleblower protection group that was been there for about a year. We've met with their new head. We've met with their general counsel's office. We have a working group established within OSC that meets regularly with them. So one of the things we really try to do is be very proactive in order to address a lot of these concerns before they, they, they start.
0: Yeah, so you're attracting cases, in other words.
1: Yes, we're a victim of our own success.
0: We're speaking with Special Counsel Henry Kerner, and your first year on the job, there was a lot of working through of the VA whistleblower cases when yes. VA had its kind of blow up. And I think of that as like watching a emu swallow a watermelon ball. You see that ball go right down that throat, that long two-foot throat, and then it's <laughs> down in the gullet. Have you mostly worked through swallowing all of those VA cases, and is it now more
1: government-wide? You know, un- unfortunately, no. <laughs> unfortunately, there have been more eating going on. And so there's more. The VA has is, is, is actually gone up in their cases. So I was a little disappointed to see that. Wow. But But, um, yeah, they've gone up. And um – all the you know, like I said, we've been working very hard. I will say the VA's VA had some turnover, as you may know, some personnel turnover. The new head of the the whistleblower protection unit over there has been there a couple of weeks. They have a new secretary who's in charge of this. There's been a lot of goodwill, so I take them at their word. I think we've we've had some very open communications with them, and so I expect those numbers to go down. But for now, I just can't make that that representation.
0: Any cases stand out for you without divulging personal information? But is there something that stands out to
1: you in the last year as wow this is the quintessential whistleblower retaliation mistake yeah absolutely so um you know we do promise confidentiality so obviously i can't talk about pending cases and and, for example, in the disclosure area, so if someone brings a disclosure to us, if they want to do that anonymously, they can, and we will never divulge their names. Sure. However, some people are willing to come forward and put their name to their concern because they really care, and we appreciate those American heroes. We do have a communications department and a director who's uh, Zach Kurz, and um, so he we've publicized some cases, so I'd like to talk about those. Last year, we resolved three related whistleblower retaliation cases involving the Transportation Security Administration where folks were in Hawaii – and they they complained about some significant errors in the processing of passengers and some security uh, risks, and they all got punished. They all got moved, and you know, getting moved out of Hawaii is not so fun. So, especially since they were from there, so we to be able to to get involved and get them reinstated. They're all back in Hawaii. They're also honored as the uh, special to 2018 Special Council Public Servants of the Year. And they got almost close to a million dollars in, in back pay and other uh, damages yeah, that 's real money that 's real money exactly and we 're very proud and they were terrific they 're terrific people, they are really American heroes who 've exposed security problems at tSA and we all care about making sure that we 're safe on our airplanes and so and then we got them reinstated, so we were very happy about that. We had a military civilian who was reporting a sexual assault, and she got punished <laughs> instead of being honored as a hero. And OSC investigated, including an on-site visit. So we went out there, which I think is very important because a lot of times it, it, it lets the, the, you know, the agency know the seriousness of our purpose, that we're there, that we care, that we're going to make, do right by, the, by her. And she got reinstated, and there was even some discipline for some supervisors in that case as well.
0: Yeah, so really covering the gamut of both programmatic and interpersonal issues. Absolutely. And let's switch gears here. I want to ask about the Hatch Act, because as you've probably noticed, the political discourse in the country is getting from worse to worse. You don't know how bad it can get. And so people tend to maybe drag this into the office and people get very passionate on both sides. Have you seen an uptick in that type of thing? We just came through an election season last fall. It's already seems like the next one is underway.
1: Yes, absolutely. We, we're we very um, cognizant of, of the politicized atmosphere. I will point out that sometimes... You see a lot of cases because there's more avenues now for people to to express themselves. We have Twitter. We didn't always have Twitter. Uh, surprisingly, our cases have actually not gone up. They've gone up from like a couple of years ago, but if you if you looked at the numbers in two eleven and, and, and twenty sorry, twenty eleven and twenty twelve, we had more cases than we did last year. So they haven't necessarily gone up. I think what we do see is we just see more more people being aware of it. So people are very vigilant of it and just much many more opportunities for people to express themselves. So there's more opportunities to potentially affect your Hatch Act, uh, potential Hatch Act violations. I do want to say one thing. The Hatch Act and at, at OSC is essentially uh, – is run by professionals. So it's their own staff. They have a chief who has been there since 2000. They have a deputy chief who's been there, just as a chief, who has been their deputy chief for, I think, 12 years. They are very experienced. They're completely nonpartisan. The unit has has resources in order to investigate all these Hatch Act cases, and they really do a terrific job to, to do this as independently as possible uh, in this environment.
0: And looking at the range of issues, I was really impressed with the range of issues that OSC covers, as outlined in your annual report to Congress, everything from Aircraft oil, uh, spinal cord maladies. I mean, you've really got a lot of specific types of issues in whistleblowing, and you've got to look at some pretty technical and
1: detailed stuff. Absolutely, and we that's, that's what I talked about earlier when we say whistleblowers really are heroes. Now, they come forward, they tell you about things you would just never know. When you mentioned the oil case, a whistleblower came forward alleging that the Army was wasting funds by failing to properly utilize an aircraft engine oil program. Following our referral. So in disclosure cases, we don't do the investigation. We take it in. We do what we call substantial likelihood evaluation. So we do a weeding out. And once we've weeded it out and decided, yes, there's a substantial likelihood that a violation occurred, we send it to the agency, which generally refers it to the IG or somebody like that, to do the investigation. They do the investigation, send us the report, and then we, just, we make it public. We send it to – in the public file, we send it to the president, we send it to the relevant congressional committees, and we also comment on it. And in that particular oil case, following the referral, the Army – when they did the investigation, determined that an improper aircraft exemption from the maintenance program cost taxpayers between $1.5 and $6.9 million. So once again, there's a cost savings along with a lot of the safety
0: issues. Yeah. And the grand scheme of the government, you know, maybe $1 or $2 million doesn't seem like a lot. But for that unit where that was occurring, it could be a substantial part of their budget.
1: Sure. Plus a a million here, a million there. So you're talking real money.
0: And what about you, Sarah? You mentioned that earlier with respect to military people returning to the workforce. And uh, there's been some drawdowns and all. What are you seeing in the trends uh, of those
1: types of cases? Yes. So, Sarah, primary, primary jurisdiction for Sarah cases lies with the Labor Department. We only get involved in very few cases. We had 25 complaints last year, um, that which was the highest number in five years. Obviously, we care very much to make sure that that service members get reintegrated and get their jobs um, now, some of them are get closed for lack of jurisdiction or merit, but we did achieve favorable outcomes in three of the four meritorious cases, and we also are prosecuting one case currently in front of the board, which has no uh, quorum. Well, right. Yes. <laughs> this is the other issue. People can appeal in yes.
0: – legally, anyway, in theory yes. to the Merit Systems Protection Board. There is no board.
1: What does that do to OSC? I mean, you so, process and send on – it's a real problem for OSC. We really need a board. Um, the most important problem by not having board is we can't get stays. So one of the one of the really important weapons for us is if somebody is retaliated against, we can get a stay ordered from the board. It's a 45-day stay, and the agency cannot fire them for 45 days, or if they did fire them, have to reinstate them. That, that protects the whistleblower in, in two ways. Number one, they're back in their job, and two, they have an income. You know, a lot of times it's great that you win two, three years later, but if you have no income, who can, who can afford to fight those battles?
0: Sure. So you're pushing for the president— to nominate, which he has, but it takes the Senate to confirm and they haven't.
1: Yes, it's a political process and we urge everybody to please agree and get everyone aboard. It's in the interest of, of every federal worker. Were you affected by the shutdown? You know, the, the shutdown obviously, you know, it set us a little bit back. One of the big challenges, I talked about OSC 1.0, so now I want to talk about OSC 2.0 and then OSC 2.0, which is my second year. Um, one of the challenges is to to get to our backlog. So we process about 6,000 new cases every year, and we have a backlog of about 2,500. Now, we, we, we also we – also, I'm sorry, we receive 6,000 cases every year, and then we process about 6,000 also. So we, we stay even on the new cases, but the backlog, we just can't address it. So it's 2,500. It is projected to reach about 3,500 cases. As I mentioned to you, timeliness, accuracy, and friendliness are my three pillars. You're not timely if you have a backlog like this. So we really have to make sure that we that we get to the backlog. Losing 30, obviously, it was one of the agencies uh, immediately affected. So we were completely shut down, essentially, except for some health and safety sections that we looked at. But so we fell behind. Obviously, that's 35 days of productivity we just lost. I will tell you, however, one thing that was very heartening was the morale of the people when they came back. was was tremendous. I mean, I'm just so proud of my coworkers and my colleagues for for coming back. I got to tell you, the first day when we were back... I have never seen so many people be happy to be at work. There were smiles everywhere. There were donuts. I think we had donuts in every kitchen, on every floor, in every place. I mean, there were donuts everywhere. People were just not just a sugar high, but they were just bouncing off the walls. They were so happy to be back at work. And that's really a a, a credit to them and just the kind of morale that I'm trying to build at, at OSC.
0: And is OSC fully staffed? And if not, what types of people are you looking for?
1: So, we're not fully staffed. Um, There's still a lot of gaps. I mean, we have done a really good job of of sort of backfilling some important uh, positions. You know, as you probably know, in the federal government, IT is a really big problem. You know, everyone has IT issues. We have a big conversion we're trying to do to this new program called ECMS. We've hired up some IT specialists, so we're working on that. But the main thing is getting that backlog. And the way we get that backlog is we have to hire more. People processing, so attorneys and examiners to process those cases, and we're, and we're in the you know we're currently trying to do that. And what's the appeal, the sell, if you will, the
0: proposition
1: for an attorney to join OSC? I think there's two. One is it's a tremendous place to work. You're making a real difference. We're a small agency, but we have a, we we pack a, a pretty good punch, and it's a tremendous. place place to to work i mean we have a very high so people really like coming to work i think we try to promote this positive work environment so it's a good place and two of course and in reverse order, two is probably the number one reason, which is the mission. We have an incredibly important mission, protecting whistleblowers, making the government better, protecting taxpayers. I mean, when we had the shutdown, you know, they kept talking about 800,000 people are affected. Well, those were directly affected. But how about the 2.1 million federal workers, even on agencies that weren't shut down, that no longer had whistleblower protections, that, you know, that could – that that, that obviously missed an OSC, that was able to fight for them. And so that mission, that sense of purpose, that sense of fighting for for a better government and for the rights of workers is what really makes OSC an attractive place to work.
0: Henry Kerner leads the Office of Special Counsel. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post a link to its annual report and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.